Attention Northwest Arkansas businesses and talent seekers. Introducing Onboard NWA.com, your hyperlocal job board crafted for our unique community. Struggling to find the perfect match for your job openings? Onboard NWA simplifies the hiring process, connecting you with the region's top talent through tailored talent matching solutions. Whether you're an employer seeking expertise or a professional looking for your next opportunity, Onboard NWA is here for you. Discover more at onboardnwa.com and let's build the future of Northwest Arkansas together. Northwest Arkansas, Randy here, bringing you a quick word from our sponsor, Signature Bank of Arkansas. Since 2005, Signature Bank has been all about empowering our community with local ownership and top-notch banking services. Signature Bank's roots run deep with assets over a billion dollars, and they're right here in your backyard with branches in Bentonville, Rogers, Springdale, Fayetteville, and now including Harrison and Jonesboro. With a growing family of more than 200 teammates, they're ready to serve you with the warmth only a true community bank can offer. And they've got Banco C, the first bilingual bank in Arkansas, to ensure that banking is for everyone. So give Signature Bank a call at 479-684-3700 or visit Signature.Bank online. Mention you heard about them on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast for that personal touch. Signature Bank of Arkansas. Big on assets, local at heart, and a proud member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. It's time for another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, the podcast covering the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life in general here in the Ozarks. Whether you are considering a move to this area or trying to learn more about the place you call home, we've got something special for you. Here's our host, Randy Wilburn. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today, as I always am. And today I have a special guest. You know, it's funny, um, I'll just give you this quick story before I introduce this individual. I joined Rotary a while ago, and to be perfectly transparent, and maybe I've mentioned this before, when I joined Rotary, I thought it was just a bunch of older people. I wasn't really sure what to get, what it meant, but being a member of Rotary has really, you know, changed things for me here in Northwest Arkansas, but just in general, in terms of finding out ways to give of myself outside of what I do with my church and, and other things. And so I just found uh, being a member of Rotary has been a significant asset for me as an individual. And, you know, it allows you to focus on things outside of your your sphere. And sometimes you have to get outside of yourself to really see that there's a big world out there and there's a lot of things to do. And so. I certainly encourage anyone listening to this podcast to come visit me 
or come visit us at the Fayetteville, downtown Fayetteville Rotary. We're one of the largest rotaries in, in this district, which takes up, uh, comprises Oklahoma and Kansas and Missouri and, and Arkansas. And uh, we meet at Mermaids every Thursday at 12 noon. So there's a standing invitation for anybody that is part of the I Am Northwest Arkansas tribe to come join me at a Rotary meeting, find out what it's all about, eat a great lunch, and just hang out and meet some fantastic people. And when I talk about fantastic people, my guest is certainly no exception to that fact. I I have uh, Judge John Fogelman on the podcast today. And Judge John was... He introduced to me a historical fact that I was unaware of when he came to speak to our Rotary Club about the Sultana disaster. Now, I know some of you are saying, what is that, Randy? I've never heard of the Sultana disaster. Well, I'm going to let Judge Fogelman tell you about the Sultana disaster. But before I do that, I just want him to introduce himself real quickly. Judge Fogelman, it is an honor to have you on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Randy, and I really, really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Listen, like I said before, when I, I saw it, when I heard the story and you had everybody wrapped with attention focus for about 45 minutes almost when you shared about this disaster and you were so thoughtful in the way that you just kind of broke it all down. And so I, w- I would love for you, you know, just first of all, tell us who you are. And I know you're, you're a retired judge, right? I am. I served for 25 years as a circuit judge in eastern Arkansas, the eastern corner of Arkansas. Practiced law for 13 years before that. And as soon as I retired, I was asked to be on the board of the Sultana Historical Preservation Society. And I knew about the Sultana. I've got a family connection to it, but I really didn't, wasn't all that into about the museum or building a museum until I got on the board and delve deeper into the story. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm glad you did that. And I'm glad that you had the time to do that. And so I would love for you just to kind of introduce the Sultana disaster, which for anybody listening to this, the, the reason why this really blew me away is because according to the historical fact and records, this is the worst, single worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. And it happened right in Arkansas. And that's that's the thing that you think about. I mean, we think about Beaver Lake and we think about all the the waterways that we have, the Buffalo River, the White River, the Kings River and and so many places. We have so many rivers and and lakes. But uh, of course, we have that big river that's over on the east side of the state, the Mississippi, the mighty Mississippi. And uh, that's where this tragedy happened. And so I'll I'll let you take it from there and just give us a quick introduction to how did this tragedy happen in the first place? Well, it was at the end of the Civil War, April of 1865, and Robert E. Lee had surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox April the 9th, and they were beginning to parole the Union prisoners who were held. The two that are impacted here are Cahaba, Alabama, and the prison camp at Andersonville, Georgia which was a really notorious prison camp where over 25% of every soldier sent there died. And these soldiers had survived all that and they were being paroled and they were sent to right outside of Vicksburg at Camp Fisk to be mustered or to be paroled. And then at Vicksburg, they were to get on a steamboat to head north. And it was 
in Vicksburg where the Sultana was loaded with over 2,100 passengers. And the Sultana, right before it got to Vicksburg, had developed a leak in one of its boilers and the captain uh, had just simply had the boiler patched rather than properly repaired. And um, the Sultana made it as far as Memphis, unloaded some hogsheads of sugar, and it started to steam back north at midnight, uh, April the 27th, and it only made it seven or eight miles upriver when the boilers exploded, resulting in the death of over 1,200. Of course, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the story. Really, some of the more interesting aspects of the story are what led to the overcrowding of the steamboat, the greed and corruption that led to the disaster, the political influence that helped contribute to it. It was just a disaster that didn't have to happen. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm, and so, so just to kind of lay it out and, and uh, to tee you up to kind of tease out some additional facts about the story. The captain of the Sultana had some challenges himself. And uh, I know originally it, the Sultana started out in New Orleans. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, in fact, one of the side stories is actually the Sultana had brought south the news of President Lincoln's death. It was in Cairo, Illinois, on April the 14th when President Lincoln was assassinated. And when the newspapers came out, the captain, James Cass Mason, gathered up papers and proceeded south from there to New Orleans, carrying the news of the death. But when Captain James Mason had some financial problems, uh, severe financial problems, and when he got to Vicksburg on the way down south, he was met there at the dock by the quartermaster in charge of the prisoner exchange, a Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Hatch. And Hatch had a deal for Captain Mason. If Captain Mason would pay him a bribe, then Lieutenant Colonel Hatch would guarantee Mason a full load of prisoners for the trip back north. Of course, Captain Mason quickly agreed to the deal, headed on to New Orleans, took on some passengers, and then on the return trip was when the problem with the de boiler developed, the leak developed, and that's one of the reasons that Captain Mason convinced the mechanic to simply patch the boiler rather than properly repair it, because it would have taken several days and he would have lost his full load of prisoners and the answer to all his financial troubles. And so there he got his full load of prisoners at the same time while the Sultana was being loaded with Union prisoners, there were two other steamboats there, the Pauline Carroll and the Enola uh, Gay, the Lady Gay, and they left Vicksburg, headed north, without a single paroled prisoner on board, leaving them all on the Sultana. It was just a disaster waiting to happen. Mm. And so, so okay, so we see that the problems that Captain James Mason had, financial issues, and, you know, I guess, I guess some of us can recognize or understand sometimes that we will cut corners sometimes to get something done. If it, And the, this was a terrible mistake that he made and a miscalculation thinking that this was just going to be another simple trip and he'd be able to make this extra money in order to take care of the debt that he had. Now, the gentleman that made him the offer, though, he he has a very unique 
history about him as well. And and I you when you teased it out and you showed the connection between him and even the White House at that time when and, and that's when, you know, President Lincoln was in power. I thought that was quite interesting. I would love for you just to connect the dots for our listeners so they can have a little bit of an appreciation about how this worked out. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Hatch should never have been in charge of the prisoner exchange in Vicksburg. Early in the war in 1862, he was an assistant quartermaster in Cairo, Illinois. And while there, he was arrested, placed in jail for taking bribes involving government contracts. He was facing court martial. He sat in jail, but he never went to trial. He was released. After being released from jail, Instead of reporting for duty, he goes AWOL. When he returns after having been AWOL, instead of being punished for going AWOL, he asks for and receives a promotion to captain. Then in January of 1865, just within months before the Sultana, Hatch is called before the quartermaster examining board in New Orleans along with other assistant quartermasters to be examined by that board on their knowledge of their general duties as an assistant quartermaster. And Hatch reports, he's examined with the others, and the quartermaster examining board finds him in pretty strong terms, totally incompetent to be even an assistant quartermaster. His accounting deficiency they described as as either being just out of just plain ignorance or culpable negligence, criminal negligence. It was an awful report on his abilities. Ten days after this report is issued, Lieutenant Colonel Hatch, Captain Hatch at the time, is not mustered out. He's not removed as a quartermaster. He is actually promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and placed in charge of the entire Mississippi district as chief quartermaster and placed in charge of the prisoner exchange in Vicksburg. Now, you might think, well, why was all of this done? Why was he not tried court-martialed for his activities in Cairo, Illinois, where the evidence was overwhelming, frankly? Why was he not punished for going AWOL and promoted? Why? Was he then placed in charge of the prisoner exchange and promoted to lieutenant colonel when there's this report saying he's totally unfit for the job? And it all goes back to one man. And it pains me to say it's the result of the intervention of one person. That's President Abraham Lincoln. And President Lincoln's one of my heroes. I think he was one of our greatest presidents, but he intervened in each case, personally writing letters, vouching for Reuben Hatch's character and asking for favors, basically, or directing that things be done. And it is a tragedy that didn't have to happen. Uh, It's a shame. Now, you might say, well, why would Lincoln act on behalf of this Hatch guy who obviously is a criminal? Well, Reuben Hatch's brother, was a man named Ozias Hatch, O.M. Hatch, who at the time was the Secretary of State of Illinois and a close personal friend and fundraiser during the 1860 election for President Lincoln. Wow. I mean, 
it boggles the mind, but it doesn't. And at the same time, just like you said, I when you first said that the other day and I, I heard it, I, I was um, somewhat vexed because I, too, really esteem some of the things that Abraham Lincoln was able to do. I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of, of his history and his life. And um, I, I don't know if anybody has I don't know if you've read Doris Kearns Leadership in Turbulent Times, which talks about Lincoln's life and how he aligned himself with people that were in his corner and people that were diametrically opposed to him. And so, you know, he surrounded himself around a lot of people that, you know, you would look at and say, well, I don't even know if this person's even in your corner. But, you know, Lincoln had the deference and the kind of wherewithal. But here's the thing. Abraham Lincoln is a human being and he's subject to make mistakes, too. And this seems like if I had to look at the body of work of Abraham Lincoln, this seems like this was a, if I could use golf terms, this would be a mulligan that he'd probably want to get back if he knew, you know, what it would ultimately result in. But the thing about it is, I don't, was he alive when the Sultana disaster happened? He, he was not. He had uh, died April the 15th. So right. this was almost two weeks after wow. Uh, his wow. death. Yeah, I would have had to imagine that he would have just, he would have been, um, so what happened to Hatch afterwards? Because I don't, I don't think that you mentioned that. Hatch kind of disappears and he is never brought to trial. One person was court-martialed as a result and it was a lower officer. I'm embarrassed to say right now, I'm drawing a complete blank on his name. Oh, it's fine. But there was a lower officer that was court-martialed. And the Secretary of War ended up throwing out the court-martial conviction because it was clear that this officer was simply being made a scapegoat, uh, and he was not responsible. So the responsible, and there's more responsibility than just Reuben Hatch. There were some other officers who were there on the scene and questioned the overloading, but then turned a blind eye to it. Yeah. And then so at the end of the day, I mean, they, they still haven't been able to. Did Captain James Mason die in on the on the ship? Yes. Captain Mason, you know, he's an interesting character. Here he was going to take bribes for or pay bribes in order to get this full load. But he went down with the boat and he is, according to a lot of the survivors in their own words, talked about him staying on board, assisting passengers, trying to provide them with things that would float because there weren't enough life preservers on board for everybody. It was just a terrible situation, but he went down with the Sultana. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about it. It's like, okay, if you think about the Mississippi River, and and I know the, the initial blast is what killed a lot of people right away as soon as yeah. that happened. So like you like you mentioned that there was a problem with the furnace and it wasn't corrected properly. And so that initial blast was basically like putting duct tape on on a furnace that needed a proper repair. And, you know, if it had that time to have done that, we may not even be having this conversation about about the ship in the first place. But, you know, what happens when you cut corners, people can get hurt. And in this case, a lot of people got hurt. So walk me through kind of the rescue efforts that took place with this, because I I would imagine that, you know, you've got people on both sides of the Mississippi that see this. I mean, it happened in the middle of the night, so it wasn't like a million people witnessed it. But you have this boat that's blowing up and, and it's on fire and it's 
you know, it's sinking it fast. Um, and what was that like? Well, the it was two o'clock in the morning when it exploded. And the river at that time, it was April, late April. It was flood stage. In places, the river was four miles wide. And it wasn't all that unusual for steamboats to catch on fire, blow up, hit a snag and sink. In this case, it, there was some delay because, of course, Memphis was about eight miles downriver. And the boat, as it burns, is floating downriver. There is an effort is started, but it's almost at daylight before efforts at saving people is started. And I believe that from the Memphis side, the first notice that they had of anything was when some of the survivors actually floated down on the Tennessee side and ended up on the cobblestones at the Memphis Wharf. And so then they sent out the military boats there because of the war. And Memphis was at that point a Union city. And they sent out a variety of boats trying to pick up passengers. On the Arkansas side, the Union Army early in the war had burned the two principal river towns, Mound City, Arkansas, which is oh about four miles from Marion, east from Marion, right on the Mississippi River, and then about a mile downriver, right across the river, about where the what we call the new bridge is, the, the I-40 bridge, was a town called Hopefield. And the Union Army had burned both of them and had destroyed most of the boats around because they thought that Confederate guerrillas were using them to make raids and, and things such as that. Mm-hmm. And so on the Arkansas side, you had you did have a Confederate soldier who had secreted a canoe and went out into the river and saved a pretty large number, risking his own life. And we know this because of the words written down later by some of the survivors and collected. We also had where the boat came to rest. It came to rest about 400 yards from the home of a Confederate sympathizer. And he and his sons lashed together some logs and went out into the river and got off of the boat, the remaining soldiers. And there were still 30 to 40 soldiers on board the boat. And they got them off at about seven at a time. And according to the survivors, as the last group went away, went to the shore, the Sultana sank. Hmm. So there were efforts all up and down the river. There were a lot of people involved. There was down at Mound City, there was another so former soldier who was out with a former steamboat captain pulling people out of the water. That was James Garrett Berry and George Malone. And then there was a Thomas Lumberson who was upriver about a mile from where the Sultana came to rest. And he also is credited with helping to save many of the Union soldiers. Yeah. Wow. When you think of that, and, and I would imagine that for days afterwards, they were still finding people and, you know, people downriver and in the way that, because I mean, the Mississippi flows north to south. So you have debris and everything going downriver. Yes. It's a tragic story. There, there are stories of bodies being found as far south as Helena, Arkansas. 
and and sometimes the steamboats they would get the bodies would get caught up in the paddle wheels it was just a tragic tragic story and there's so many that died who, who were never able to identify so many unknown soldiers that resulted in the memphis national cemetery there's only one national cemetery in the country with more unknown soldiers than the memphis national cemetery and that's arlington it's just a tragic story i mean that just gives you the scope of of how many you know military people were on this ship and just think i mean these these folks were heading north the war is over i mean they they are trying to get back to some normalcy and and hopefully get back to their lives and unfortunately all of their lives were were cut short on on the river that night now there were there was an interesting story that i read about an individual that there there were a p- couple people on there that were not soldiers is that correct that's right uh, print the main story that i i like to relate to people because it, it's a combination of tragedy and heroism is the spikes family they got on board in new orleans headed north uh, it was a mother father three sons three daughters and two nieces and one of the sons clinton dewitt spikes was credited with saving 30 union soldiers and as he lay on the the bank of the river he just became overwhelmed with grief when he was told that his entire family had perished there are so many layers to this sultana story it's a story that has to be told and you know a lot of times we think about a boat going down and you think about well, people swimming and there's a couple of things there one the mississippi river is not a place to swim it's got some of the strangest currents and whirlpools and it is a dangerous river to swim in but a lot of these soldiers uh, one in particular private commodore smith he wrote that before he was captured he weighed 175 pounds and when shortly before he got on board the sultana at vicksburg he weighed 94 pounds and he was not alone in that there were many many soldiers who were sick who were injured who were grossly malnourished having been in the prison camps these soldiers had survived the deadliest war in american history and they'd survived all that they were finally going home it was a real tragedy and this story has to be told it has to be kept alive yeah and that's what we're trying to do yeah, no. And again, and I, I'm certainly hoping that, you know, just by sharing this story and putting it out here on this podcast, that some people will listen to this and really be moved to not just action, but just move to getting some additional information about this maritime disaster. So does the boat still rest on the bottom of the Mississippi right now or where is it? Well, the river changed course. Now, the story is the river changed course because of the Sultana wreckage. Not so sure if that's correct or not. That's not been verified. But without regard to that, the Sultana right now rests about, uh, oh, maybe a mile and a half from the the current river. It's under about 30 feet of the Delta Silt under a soybean field. In fact, I was out there earlier this spring with the owner of the property and the soybeans are doing really well, but the boat itself is way down underground. 
there are still soldiers that were not able to be recovered who were on board. It's a tragedy. The site itself needs to be a National Historic Landmark. And that's one of the reasons we're building this museum to try to tell the story, keep the story alive, and to give these soldiers who had given so much their rightful place in history. And so they won't be forgotten. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and that's I'm sitting here holding the Sultana Disaster Museum in Marion, Arkansas, the deadliest maritime disaster in American history. You guys basically uh, are trying to expand what is a, a storefront museum for all intents and purposes and give it an air of legitimacy that it so rightfully needs by creating a brand new museum that would really be able to tell the full story of the Sultana disaster. Do you want to just talk about the efforts to do that? Sure. The Sultana, I want to back up just a little bit. The Sultana story had been basically forgotten until 1985 when a Tennessee lawyer, a Nashville lawyer, Norman Shaw, put an ad in the paper, in the Nashville paper, telling, saying, people, if, if you're interested in the Sultan in any way, meet me on, on a certain date, certain time at Mount Holly Cemetery outside of Nashville. And when he showed up, there ended up being 50 or 60 people there. And a lot of them were descendants of people who'd been on board. And from that, that became the seed that turned into the Association of Sultana Descendants, which is not really a formal organization, but they've met every year. And as a result of that, some of them started talking about a museum. And the very first display of artifacts, Sultana artifacts, was not held until 2013 at Arkansas State University in Jonesboro. And then from there, it moved to Marion because of our proximity to where it happened. And now we are the owners of the artifacts, the Sultana Historical Preservation Society. And the city of Marion established in 2015 a small museum, 1,000 square feet, totally inadequate to tell the story the way it needs to be told. And in 2018, before I was involved, they kicked off efforts to try to build, raise the money to build a permanent museum. I became involved in 2019 and have been there ever since. And we are trying to raise $10 million. We have raised on right at $5.4 million to date. And when we reach $6 million in commitments, we will begin construction, which we anticipate being later this year. We've got a great architecture group, the Hazlip Studio out of Memphis, who for your Northwest Arkansas friends, they did the Scott Family Amazium at Bentonville. They've done museums all over the country. It's a great group. We have a great board, former president of of Mid-South Community College, Dr. Glenn Fenner, who's actually a, a Western Arkansas native from Alma. We've got a former congressman who's on our board, uh, Vic Snyder, who was the congressman in the 2nd Congressional District in Little Rock. And then it's a collection of historians, authors, 
business people here locally who are on the board to make this museum a reality. Well, I mean, I think you guys are doing a good job at getting the word out. And, and I'm sure you're, you've been busy visiting other ro- rotary groups and other places that will have you come and speak and tell the story of the Sultana disaster, because it is one, like you said, that does need to be told. And there's been enough time that has passed that we need to, to make sure that we acknowledge this uh, event. And one of the things that you did mention after this attorney, Norman Shaw, had this event Every year, these folks get together, right? And and so in each year, there's a certain number of people that participate in this that are direct descendants of those that died on the on the boat. Yes, we, my wife and I, went to Springfield, Illinois this year for their annual get together, and there were 85 people uh, representing 26 different states. And most of them, nearly all of them were descendants of somebody who was on board. Some lived and some that had died. Wow. It is amazing. In fact, some of the people had only within the last year found out that their ancestor had been on board. It's a story that keeps growing and it need, it just has to be told. There are so many lessons from this story that need to be told and it needs to be told now. If we don't do it, I'm afraid it's going to get lost to history. Absolutely. Well, we certainly want to try to help you extend this story to as many ears as possible, as many eyes as possible. So I really want to encourage anyone listening to this to, to learn more about the Sultana disaster. Judge Fogelman, how, what's the, uh, you guys have a website for this now, right? We do. It's uh, sultanadisastermuseum.com. If anyone wants to correspond the old-fashioned way, you can mail to P.O. Box 211 in Marion, Arkansas, 72364. 72364. And we'll be sure to put all of this on the show notes so that people know how to reach out if they want to make a donation, if you want to. uh, If they make a donation, they would make it out to whom? They would make it out to the Sultana Historical Preservation Society. We're a 501c3 corporation. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll put all that preservation society. We'll put all of that in the show notes so that people know how to, how to connect with you. Is there also a sultanadisaster.org site? No. No, there's there, not. There, okay. there was. Okay. There was at one time. Okay. But, all right. That's fine. So we'll make sure that. We put this accurate information out there then. Right. That has led to some confusion. I do want to, we, we yeah. have had donations from over 350 people from 28 different states. So our base of support is really wide. We've had contributions all the way from $10 up to a million dollars. Of course, one of the more interesting stories is the million dollar contributor. It's a company that's was originally based out of Connecticut. It's now owned by a German company, HSB. It's the Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection and Insurance Company. And you might say, why in the world would a company from Connecticut or Germany pledge a million dollars to the efforts? Well, this is so interesting. They had a group, there was like a club, and they would sit around. This is pre-Sultana. And talk about the problems with steamboats and science issues. And after, of course, nothing ever happens. That's like a lot of clubs. People talk about problems, don't ever do anything. 
And then after the Sultana happens, two of the members form the Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection and Insurance Company to inspect boilers and insure them against disaster, which increased, you know, for safety purposes. And that company is still in existence and and they are right now our founding sponsors. Wow. I love that. That's that's awesome. I suspect that you're going to get more sponsors for this and that uh, as people hear about the story, because like I said, I, I consider myself a fairly well-read person and uh, this story escaped me. And I, I just don't know how it did. And I, I, I missed that that class period where they talked about the Sultana disaster it didn't happen. So they is it talked about didn't. in public schools? When I, of course, I'm uh, I'm a bit older than you are, but when <laughs> I was at Arkansas State, I took every history class I could, and I took them from the top professors. And after class one day, I asked the professor why there wasn't anything about the Sultana in the history book. And he looked at me with this blank look. He had never heard of the Sultana. <laughs> of course, that was before 1980. <laughs> yes, and that was before 1985. And the current Arkansas history textbook does not even mention it. Yeah. The prior Arkansas history textbook had a one paragraph little blurb about the Sultana. And that was it. We're trying to change all of that. Yeah. Well, we are certainly rooting for you guys as you as you endeavor to do that and and, and get the word out about the Sultana disaster through this Sultana uh, disaster museum program. And so we certainly will encourage, again, anyone listening that was really moved by the story that Judge Fogelman shared today, I really want you to invest with these guys and, and just give in any way, even even a small amount will help out to help them achieve their objectives of building this brand new museum. This And just remember, you can go to SultanaDisasterMuseum.com. The address, if you want to go old school, is P.O. Box 211. That's Marion, Arkansas, 72364. Judge Fogelman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really, really appreciate it. This was engaging and enlightening. I learned a lot when I sat before you at the Rotary meeting and now again on this podcast. So thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to share this story with our audience here at I Am Northwest Arkansas. Well, thank you for having me, Randy. Absolutely. absolutely. I love Northwest well, Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I do too. And and uh, I, I think everybody is is happy with the Razorbacks right now being at the time of we're recording this, they're number 10 in the nation. So that's that's always a good thing to talk about football. So, but I think people will be listening to this episode two and three and four years down the line because it's it's actually timeless in, in the message. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, w- you know, tragedies will always be with us. But I think that the clear thing here is that we never forget them. And I think right. that's one of the important aspects of it. So Thank you again for that. Well, thank you for having me and helping me spread the word. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's another episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. To learn more about us or to read or download the show notes from today's episode, visit IamNorthwestArkansas.com. You can listen to this podcast and sign up for our free newsletter to keep up with us and all things NWA. Sign up today. You can subscribe to the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast wherever you listen to it, and please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate every review, and we're going to start reading more of those on the on the uh, show. So please, you, you might be famous because you leave us a review. 
Remember, our podcast comes out every Monday, rain or shine. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn. We'll see you back here next week for another new episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. Peace. We hope you enjoyed this episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. Check us out each and every week, available anywhere that great podcasts can be found. For show notes or more information on becoming a guest, visit IamNorthwestArkansas.com. We'll see you next week on I Am Northwest Arkansas.